Thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I hope we can continue to serve as an important source of information and entertainment during these unprecedented times. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Bitstamp, before we get started with the episode. They're the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been a cornerstone of the cryptocurrency industry and the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a matching engine from NASDAQ, the global stock exchange, and their APIs are consistently recognized as the best in the industry. Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, features live charting, deep analytical tools, and is available on web and mobile. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to what is going to be a very special episode of The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, the director of News at the Block. And on the other side of the mic is Steve Ehrlich, the CEO of Voyager, the cryptocurrency retail broker. Steve, thank you for coming on the show. This is uh, our second take after some technical issues last week, but I said a little prayer before we turned on the mics to the podcast gods, and so I think we'll be in good shape. Thanks for having me. It was so much fun the first time. We just had to do it again, right? Exactly. Some of the same subjects, some new ones, I'm sure, whatever. We got a bunch to go over. Who even knows what's going to happen? But hopefully the audio quality is in good shape and and we have a, a similarly enjoyable time. What We're really excited to have you on just talk about the different capital market trends shaping crypto right now, specifically the intersection of the IPO market and the crypto market. Voyagers, for our listeners who may not be aware is among the few companies in the crypto market that trades publicly. It went public via a reverse merger in 2019 and has since recently listed on the Canadian Securities Exchange or transferred over to the Canadian Securities Exchange. Steve, before we talk about your journey or rather the firm's journey to the public markets, walk us through what you think is behind all of this talk about crypto firms going public. Last time we spoke, you mentioned a lot of people were hitting you up, emailing you, asking for your sagic advice. What's driving all this interest? Look, I think that, you know, in this market today, A, there's a lot of exuberance. I mean, there, there are market highs. Companies are valued fairly healthy in the marketplace today. Someone told me today that uh, DraftKings was maybe 35x revenue, which is kind of off the charts. And so I think People are looking to the public markets to monetize all the work they've done over the last couple of years. And I think it's unfortunate, as we talked about last week, in that, you know, it's really the only way to monetize your investment today uh, and the time you put in from as a public company. Uh, You either go the route of going public or you wind up selling your company to another company, which may be private or public. But there is no digital securities, secondary market, so we could take things public on the digital markets and be able to access those markets that way. So 
I think it's the natural progression for companies as you start growing and building your business. You have investors along the way, and each one of them wants an exit and be able to get a return on their investment. And again, the most natural way is through the public, public traditional markets. I guess another reason they might be interested in going public is to have that sort of currency, if you will, to go out and acquire new companies. Everyone's been talking about how the crypto market is ripe for M&A activity. We've seen a few deals. We've seen quite a few deals this year, right? If you think about um, Binance acquiring CoinMarketCap, uh, Coinbase acquiring Tagomi in an all-stock deal, their private stock, that is. Do you think that might also be another driver of, of companies looking to go public so that they have that, as you described it last time on the show, that currency to then go out and, and snap up other businesses? It's a great point, Frank. I think that is exactly a reason to be public as well. You go from having private currency, which uh, unless you start digging into all the series and all the rounds that companies do, series A, B, C, D, and what that all entails, you go public and it's right there in front of everybody, what you're worth, what your stock's worth, the financials of the company, the metrics of your company, and it's there. And it's a currency now to go make acquisitions. We were fortunate enough to do two acquisitions ourselves, basically in our first year of being public. Uh, one, we acquired a wallet uh, and some IP that's very important to what we do today. Uh, the ethos wallet and then second we were able to acquire the accounts from circle and i don't believe that if we weren't you know if we were private we would be able to get either of those done but being public you know the sellers were more than happy to take our stock and they've been rewarded with it you know since then so i do believe i think it's a great way to get acquisitions done uh, i did run all the m a at e-trade back in the early 2000s and use that currency quite often to scale the business and it's an effective way to really grow a business. That's definitely something we want to get into, um, your background um, at E-Trade during what was relatively the early days of the retail brokerage boom, right? Early 2000s? Yeah, we were there and I got there in 1999. Was 1999. Part of a, yeah, 1999, part of a company that sold, institutional broker that sold to E-Trade in 1999. And I stayed there to 2006. So... Spent seven years there. I ran all the M&A on the brokerage side for many of those years. Uh, did a lot of different things on the brokerage side of the world. Uh, was the number two guy in the brokerage to Jarrett Lillian and helped build very, the very first online account opening app that used electronic signatures, which today, I think any of your listeners would be like, electronic signatures, account opening, that's like commonplace. Back then, it was they used to send the applications out to people after you did the initial. Sure opening and you'd have to you know complete it sign it and send it back and we built the very first fully electronic account opening that allowed people to use digital signatures to open the account and get started and make their first purchase right away because you wanted to buy that stock before it went up you didn't want to wait five more days to get your application in it was a huge change for e-trade back in those days yeah i mean it's definitely pretty funny to talk about what was cutting edge, bleeding edge 20 years ago and, and what is now just, like you said, commonplace. Like if you're not doing that, you're just completely behind. But I want to stay on the IPO thread. There's sure. definitely some 
really interesting parallels we can make about the retail mania happening right now and your experiences back in the late 1990s. But we can save that for later. Going back to the IPO point, this was probably a little bit more newsy maybe two or three weeks ago with uh, the news breaking that Coinbase was eyeing a potential public offering at the end of this year. And then, you know, we spoke with the folks at BlockFi. They also are looking to possibly go public 2021. And then over the weekend, our friend Barry Silbert over at DCG tweeted about uh, a bunch of different SPAC pitches coming his way from every direction. SPAC has become the new buzz hot word across all markets, right? This this sort of vehicle by which a firm can can go public. It seems similar to the way in which Voyager went public. So we can we can draw some comparisons between the SPAC process and the reverse acquisition process. But I guess it's it's still in the news is the point I'm trying to make, right? We, whether it's companies from the crypto world going public via a SPAC, via direct listing, via traditional IPO, there are many different ways to do this. And I imagine people are maybe asking you advice, not only about whether or not now's the right time to go public, but also which way they should go public. And so I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on some of these various ways to approach the public market. Yeah, we do get, uh, and I do get quite a few calls, emails asking, how'd you do it? What should we look for? Things we should think about. You know, we've learned uh, a lot of things over being public for the last 18 months, how to manage investors, how to get our name out and how to promote and become have people more aware of our stock and what we do. Because I think that's the, the hardest part when you're a small to mid cap company, uh, a little different than Coinbase, which will come out and everybody will know Coinbase. But when you're a small mid cap company, there's not a lot of people who know what you do. And so we've given some guidance to, to companies about what you need to do to make yourself more aware in the public and potential investors to know what you do. Uh, I find it extremely interesting that uh, Coinbase, that news slipped about them going public. Uh, as we discussed, I think it's very much down the path that it's going to happen. I don't believe a company of that size with the investors as intelligent as they have let those things slip without some real truth to it, which is extremely exciting for the industry. You know, I think it's going to be a great, great change for the industry to have something of that size be public. But again, I think people do reach out to us a lot because they want to understand the path we took, why we took the path and how we got there and then how we manage as a company after that, because managing a private company is completely different from managing a public company when it comes to audits, internal controls, dealing with regulators. You're a public company. There's a lot more that you have to be aware of than as a private company. And so we took that path. We seem to be getting rewarded for it at this point in time and happy to give guidance to anybody who's thinking and contemplating that path. The interesting thing about Voyager, right, is you guys didn't necessarily take the traditional route to the public markets. When most people think about it, they think about a company listing their shares on New York Stock Exchange, ringing the bell at NASDAQ and and going through that standard IPO process of, you know, getting the underwriters together and then that that first trade. Walk us through a little bit about the the way in which you went public and why you decided on going that route. Yeah, we took a less traditional way and we did what they call a reverse takeover. 
So the founding fathers of our company, uh, myself, Gaspar Tetruzzi, Philip Aton, Oscar Salazar, most notable out of that is Oscar Salazar. He was the founding CTO of Uber. Uh, we decided to buy a shell uh, that was listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange and then merge into that shell with our business that we were building. Uh, that's the agency crypto broker today called Voyager. We took that path because it was a way for us to raise money during the process uh, in a really efficient manner. Uh, we had a lot of friends and family and some small, smaller investors that wanted to be part of this. And so we took a different route than going, you know, the, the initial listing. Uh, a lot of the same work but we felt that this was going to be the most efficient way for us to get to market in the quickest way. And one of the things about it was to get there quick. It wound up taking us 12 months. It wasn't super quick as we had originally thought. But that said, we were able to raise money all along the way. And we started that in late 17, early 18, when we started to get into crypto winter. So the fact that we were in that process actually helped us because we found investors that were willing to invest in a public company in that time frame, So we did take that non-traditional route. Uh, again, I think it's paid off for us. And as we are today, we're a public company, same as everybody else. So in the end, you get to the same goal. What was kind of behind that desire to get to market quickly? First and foremost, we felt being public was going to bring transparency to the industry and make all our numbers public, being a, a fairly small company starting out a startup company, we wanted to be you know, trusted and be a trustworthy agency broker by being public. And that was the reason we wanted to go fast and try to get there quick because we got our product to market fairly quick and we wanted people to understand and consumers to understand that who they were doing business with was a public company and a trusted source. So it was all about timing, trying to get our product to market at the same time getting the uh, RTO completed and be listed so that there's that trusted solution for an agency broker rad, rather than some of the things we've seen happen in the industry. We wanted to make sure people knew audited financial statements, quarterly statements that had to be filed on a public basis. So we're trying to go fast so we can meet the timelines of getting the product to market at the same time. As soon as you guys went public, was there an increase in demand from certain client sectors as a result of your books essentially now being out there in the public view? There definitely was. The day we went public, our app all of a sudden, you know, it was about 4X what we had in volume and customers than it was prior to that. You know, and I think we just started to grow from there. And I do believe that it's, I, I have a very strong opinion on this one that being public and transparent has helped us get to where we are today and just have record days in July. You know, as the market has gotten a little volatile with altcoins, we've had record days for our business. And a lot of it comes back to being a public company with the transparency that we bring to the crypto brokerage world. Interesting. So thinking about Coinbase for a moment, a competitor to a certain extent, right? I mean, you guys compete for business. As they sort of eye the public markets, walk us through like what that process is probably like for them. What are they considering? What sort of ducks do they need to get in a row? What are they probably working through and, and what do they need to figure out before they get to that point? Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of planning to go in in place as you start embarking on becoming a public company. 
A, making sure you have the right auditors to take you public that can audit your systems, make sure your internal controls abide by the SEC guidelines and therefore AICPA standards, making sure that you have all the proper personnel in place that have been able to do quarterly and annual reporting in respect to the proper SEC filings. And you have to start putting the whole team together that's been there before in taking a company public. And I'm sure within that boardroom, they're thinking about what additions to the team do they need to make? And I've seen them make some additions. Uh, you know, what's the pricing? How's our model? And how does the SEC gonna look at our model when we follow the S1? You know, what's the security related to that? And what are the questions? Trying to anticipate the questions that the SEC are gonna ask when you follow an S1. You know, the first, first filing of the S1 comes and then the SEC will have a whole bunch of questions. So you try to anticipate those questions. Uh, you wanna get all your risk assessment done. I'm sure there's gonna be quite a few risk questions in their S1 that are gonna to have to be addressed. You're trying to think ahead as to make sure to shorten the process, you've thought through the things the SEC may ask. And look, the SEC hasn't been the most open about cryptocurrencies. Uh, we know where they stand on Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I think you have to address and try to think through how they're gonna ask the questions on everything else that Coinbase does as a business. And I'm sure that's what they're thinking about in the boardroom. As you were, as you were sort of talking, I was, I was pulling up um, a few of these LinkedIn jobs, job ads that I noticed last week, a number of audit positions open at Coinbase. So an associate manager, three associate manager positions for internal audit, um, a paralegal, a uh, position in Tokyo, senior counsel, regulatory in San Francisco. So to your point, I mean, they're hiring a bunch of auditors and lawyers, and then there's probably an element of the IPO pushing them to make some of these hires. It's risk mitigation, right? I mean, I think at the end of the day, you want to make sure that you're analyzing your own company internally more so than anyone external is, is examining it. Haven't spent the time I did at E-Trade. These were all the things that internally we were probably harder on ourselves than ex any external auditor that would come in and audit, whether it was a FINRA regulated audit or an SEC audit uh, or end of the year financial audit. You want to be harder on yourself than the external auditors will be on you. So you want to make sure that you're looking at everything and being really critical of how you do business before you get it to the public markets. Because once you're in the microscope, everything is out there and people will look at you and you've got to make sure you're, you've critiqued your business in a way that says, this business is ready to go public. We've made all the right decisions and we feel really comfortable that if X, Y, or Z becomes in the marketplace, we're comfortable with that. And I think they're, with all those jobs out there, they're, they're probably focused on that. I think one of the common themes of this conversation is that being a public company is, is a totally different beast. And that comes with its benefits and its drawbacks. One thing I always think about, you know, I don't, I don't run a company in the same capacity that you do, but being a very early employee at a, a startup and, and going through the slings and arrows that are not atypical at a startup, it'd be interesting if added on top of that was a, a ever-changing stock price, right? And so I, I'd be curious okay. to know, you know, when you go from private to public, 
and then you're the CEO, right? So sort of the person where the buck stops. To what degree do you, uh, obviously you, you have a responsibility to your shareholders, but um, does that stock price add a level of anxiety um, and maybe it should to your job? That's a great question. Uh, it always adds a level of anxiety because you know, you're always trying to do what's right for your shareholders. When you become a public company, even as a private company with investors, your number one thought is, am I doing right by my investors and shareholders? So that always comes first. Uh, second then becomes the, the employees and customers. But, you know, and they're all kind of intertwined anyway, because you can't do right by your shareholders unless you're doing right by your customers. And you can't do right by your customers or shareholders unless you're doing right by your employees. So they all get intertwined. But you do need to think about your share price. But I've always thought of one thing, you know, even my time, E-Trade, now my time at Voyager running the business, operate the business correctly, operate it appropriately, keep to your plan, stick to your plan, continue to run the business as best as you can. And then the stock price winds up taking, taking care of itself. Now, that said, you have ups and downs with your stock price that are unexplainable. Like, hey, we had a great quarter. Why did our stock go down? And so you try to you know, explain the unexplainable, but you try to stay on that path and grow in the business. The place where it, it most affects, I believe, is you know, the employee mentality and trying to make sure your employees don't get too hung up on a stock price. You want them to just stay focused on building the business with the mindset that we keep building this business, that stock price will go from bottom left to top right. And that's the hardest thing to get across to people. I've been lucky enough to, to have been at E-Trade. I was there when stock was at $25. I was there when the stock was $3. And when I left, it was back at 27 So you start to, you, you, you look at it, you understand it, but you know you have a job to do and you want to keep building the business forward. That's the hardest thing to transition for people is getting out of the mentality of, okay, I own a million dollars today, half a million tomorrow, a million and a half the next day if, if you're lucky enough. It happens. The business grows and the market takes care of itself. There's also a level of discipline, too, that being a public company adds. It's something that um, when I was covering IPOs and exchanges at Business Insider, um, then I think he was the head of global listings, John Tuttle. Whenever he would talk about IPOs and, and the benefits of going public, discipline uh, or this element of discipline was something he would always talk about. And it's an interesting point and it's something re respectfully that I think not just Coinbase, but many cryptocurrency companies could use, right? Is this element of discipline. If you're a publicly traded company, perhaps you don't have a stable coin that's only 74% backed by uh, US dollars, as was the case with Bitfinex, or perhaps you don't spread yourself too thin in a myriad of businesses as one might argue was the case with Coinbase, right? You know, and they sort of went out to Chicago and tried to build up a business there that probably cost millions of dollars and, you know, just kind of putting their, their hands in, in many different um, pots, if that's an expression. But th the point is, right, you know, that there is this level of discipline that is added when you go public, which is something that not only Coinbase could benefit from, but the crypto industry as a whole. So I'm kind of making a point here as opposed to asking a question, but when people see firms like Coinbase wanting to go public or, you know, others, they might think, well, who cares? What's, what does it matter? It's just 
an exit for early employees so they can get liquidity. But at the end of the day, it's something that could impact all of us, right? There's discipline that's added. A lot of the majority of job creation, I'm pretty sure, happens post a company going public, right? Because they have that additional capital. So there are things about firms in crypto going public that will have these ramifications. What are some maybe that you're thinking of that maybe we haven't touched on? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think discipline is a very big one. I think you have to, you have a game plan and you've got to play that game plan out. And it is true that I think private companies tend to get themselves a little wider to see what sticks and, and if something works, stick with it. If it doesn't, you know, shelve it. Uh, I think public companies, because of all the guidance that you work with, with research analysts and with the street and with individuals, because you have Reg FD, so any information you send out has got to go you know, to the public. I think people do are a little more careful in what they expose to the street, the money they spend, the financial aspects of it all. And I think those are the things that when you're a public company, you they become public. It's interesting when I say that in that public companies, it becomes public, but you file these documents and you have to attest to them in a much different manner than when you're private. And yes, both times you're, you're focused on investors and straightforward and you need to be straightforward with your investors. But now this information is out in the landscape and you can't pull it back. And therefore you have to have a, a sense of discipline to make all this work. Otherwise you get caught up in, in your own belief that you can do everything. And we've seen way too many companies outside the crypto space try too many things and fail and it puts them in a big hole. I think crypto is definitely one place where it's so big, it's so broad, there's so many things to take care of, and we're, we're redoing an entire financial infrastructure, if not global financial infrastructure, that you better be really good at one or two things and not be average across the board, because average doesn't win. Being good or great is what actually wins. And I think that's what you'll see more and more with crypto companies trying to go public, they will try to be the best at the parts of the business that they know and will excel at those and not do the things that they'll be averaging. Not to give away too much alpha, as we say. That's what we say at the block whenever we talk about something that could help someone else or, or help them make a lot of money. We, we talk about leaking alpha. And so they try not to leak too much alpha for me. They don't want my job to be too easy. But if you were giving advice to Coinbase in terms of you know, gleaning on your experience now at Voyager, but also at E-Trade, what are some of the things that they need to start doing outside of the regulatory front and the auditing front to be a strong retail brokerage? What, what maybe are they not getting quite right? Well, they've got a lot right. I mean, I think I read over the weekend, 35 million customers. So, so clearly they got a lot right, which, which, you know, I learned from them, uh, and I think that's an important aspect is all of us can learn from each other. Um, look, I just think the openness of numbers, uh, transparency of numbers is the number one thing that you you gain by being public and can make retail consumers and institutional consumers, because I know they're making a good push at institutional, is really to be open. Uh, and I think that's what we learned from day one is be open and be transparent. And it goes a long way uh, with consumers. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Let, I mean, let's pivot now to 
and it's funny because you talk about numbers. I'm I'm looking at um, this Wall Street Journal article. I don't know if you saw it. Everyone's a day trader now. Everyone's <laughs> a day trader that. now. Bored, isolated, and out of work amid the pandemic, millions of Americans are chasing stock market glory and bragging about it online. And so you were talking about Coinbase's 35 million uh, clients, and it's not clear if those are active or inactive or how much money these accounts have. But in any case, E-Trade, your alma mater, um, was cleaning up from February to May. So February, they added 43,000 accounts. March, they added 260,000, then 134,000 in April. And that's like, you know, that's kind of the old guard at this point. You know, I'm sure TD or, or rather uh, Robinhood added um, a number of accounts that was likely an order, to, an order of magnitude lar larger than, than what E-Trade was racking up. Um, so there is this fervor. There is this retail fervor. The number of Robinhood users positioned in S&P 500 stocks is up to 4.2 million positions in June from 4.7 in February. I mean, this is this is a good time to be a broker despite, you know, commissions going to zero. What do you make of all of this? I've seen this show before and I know it doesn't end well. Uh, you know, I was at E-Trade in, in the early days and the first bubble burst in 2001. Um, and it flushed out a lot of day traders. Um, and then I saw it again in 08 and 09 when I ran my own firm called Lightspeed, which in, in three years from 06, when I started it as a management buyout out of E-Trade to 08, 09, we were doing 450,000 trades a day, really focused on professional and day traders. It never ends well. Uh, for the average person, day trading, you might make some short-term gains, uh, try to stay in it long term. It it's painful. You have to have. You brought up the word discipline earlier. To be a really good, effective day trader, you better be really disciplined. You better know uh, when to fold them and when to hold them, and when to to you know cut your losses and extend your gains. And I think that's a talent and a strategy that takes a lot of work and effort to do. So there might be some easier gains being made here as our stock market hit uh, you know 17,000 maybe on the Dow if, if memory serves me right in March and now it's you know it's up substantially from there. So everyone thinks they're a good day trader, but I've seen this show before and the reruns usually aren't as good as the original. So it's going to be end well, you know, not end well for a lot of people. It's one of the reasons we've partnered with Pete and John Nigerian and their market rebellion business too is because they educate people. They educate them about how to trade. And I think education is extremely important if you want to be a long-term consistent day trader. If you're just trying to teach yourself uh, and take advantage of some market swings, it, it really will be, uh, it won't be a, a good ending. I've just seen it twice already. Um, and the third time can't be as, you know, can't be better than the first two. Yeah. Education is, is a key element. And I totally agree. John's a good friend and what they're doing with market market rebellion is really what, what we need in the midst of all of this chaos and noise, just folks who are providing the tools to educate investors and traders on, on what exactly they might be getting themselves into. And 
folks can argue that certain platforms might have been doing a, a better job or worse job than others at providing that education. We can go back to discipline for a second because I think it's something that we're seeing firms like Robinhood try to achieve, right? They're trying to become more disciplined and, and kind of focus on educating the user and making sure that, you know, we don't have tragic events like folks who are getting in way over their heads and, and trading with, you know, more money than they, than they should and getting themselves into, into trouble from a financial perspective. They're sort of, you know, pulling back a little bit from crypto so that they can focus on, on the traditional brokerage business and kind of make it a little less of a, you know, casino, if you will. And that's something that we see in crypto, right? Like so many of these platforms, they just feel like casinos. Do you, do you think that's part of the problem? Like a lot of these platforms are just starting to look like, you know, we talked about DraftKings, I think at the beginning, like they feel like they're, they're more of an entertainment experience than a trading experience. And maybe that's part of the problem. It's why we built Voyager the way we did. We built it to be a trading experience while trying to add some education and find the right partners to work with. Because I think long term, you know, our job is to bring wealth to consumers. It's why we added interest components to Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and USDC. And we want people to create wealth. We don't want them to just trade like a casino or, or bet on black or red. We want them to have more information and earn wealth while they're doing this as we try to transition into a different financial market where we believe that there will be more securities traded in the digital markets uh, over time. But education, bringing tools, bringing news all to these platforms is an important you know, aspect of what we're trying to do. And I think there are too many of these platforms that just give you this casino feel, level two trading, and you're, you kind of get caught up in it. And you may not even know what you're looking at. You just see a lot of red and green and make decisions that way. It's our long-term mantra is to bring wealth uh, to consumers and let them be successful in investing and trading in the crypto markets. And we're just in the first inning of the nine inning game. Funny how I say use baseball as a metaphor, uh, what, what's transpiring in, in Major League Baseball these days. But that's we feel it's the first inning of a nine-inning game and bringing that notoriety to crypto trading. No, it's, it's a really good point. And it's funny how we like to think that these markets are so different, but in many respects, they share the same qualities, right? Like, again, a lot, you talk about the level two, level three trading, um, you know, experience uh, that's omnipresent in crypto, we have these different trading competitions and, and stuff like that. I remember when I began covering Robinhood early on, when they were revamping their platform, they really wanted it to look and feel like Amazon. So kind of like a shopping experience, but it can open some doors that you may not want to open. Um, but I, I guess the, the, the natural follow-up to this discussion is what we're seeing a lot of fintech players do, which is enter into crypto as a means to acquire customers, right? We, we, uh, we've seen the PayPal news. They are going to partner with Paxos. Um, it's been reported 
to offer crypto trading. And, and many folks in the space speculate that it's a way to kind of get an edge on Square, which has had an enormous amount of success with their Bitcoin product. How do you see the sort of relationships relationship between the crypto and fintech space? And to what degree is leveraging crypto a effective tool to acquire new customers as a fintech robo-advisor type firm? Yeah, everybody always wants to keep up with the Joneses, right? And so I think the, the PayPal Venmo using uh, somebody uh, to, to try to balance the playing field against uh, Cash App, uh, you know, we saw that coming. Um, I do believe that the market's so much bigger and deeper than Bitcoin. And it's just a mistake being made by folks saying, hey, you know, Bitcoin is the only thing that's going to survive. Bitcoin's the the crown jewel, and I only want to be in the crown jewel. That'd be like saying I only want to you know only want to invest in the Fang stocks or or you know just a handful of stocks. There's so much more to the infrastructure and what we're what's being built in the crypto side, and that's why I think that's great. It'll help adoption there. But what we try to do, and and we have plenty of the uh, wealth managers, uh, neo banks calling us for our services too. Through our APIs, we started with Market Rebellion, and we've got others, and we're starting to, un, you know, unveil others over time here to bring a more, a deeper crypto market to consumers. I think it's, it's not right, you know, just one crypto isn't the way it's going to be, and Bitcoin isn't going to be the only one ten years from now, and we're seeing some really great projects that we've added to the platform, and I think it's a bigger, broader, deeper offering that really gets consumers attentions and really brings them to say, Hey, I want to be, you know, I want to be trading and investing in multiple assets, not just one. And I failed to see where, you know, the, the cash apps and the Venmo's and those guys are offering the interest and allowing people a lot more deeper product. So I think it's, it's short-sighted and it doesn't give the crypto world enough credit for what's happening. And we need deeper products, not shallower products. When you when you talk about deeper products, is that just more diversity in coins or does that entail something else? Diversity in coins, interest bearing, ability to use some of the USDC uh, stable coins as payments, uh, more news, more information, more charting, deeper charting than just simple line charts. All those things that traders and investors are used to seeing on the traditional online brokerage products that aren't the professional trading solutions, those are what I consider a deeper product for crypto. And that's, you know, that's what we build. That's what, you know, I'm hopeful that we could keep changing the market and getting more adoption to have more and more customers have that, you know, that ability to take advantage of a market that's just more than Bitcoin. But in the interim, right, it's it's funny. I don't know if the the Davy Portnoy's of the world, the day traders out there really care about deeper charting or or any of that stuff. They just want to get in, click a button, buy their stock or their coin, and then that's it, right? Maybe are you maybe that's a different sort of uh client demo than the more active type traders or what do we call them? Uh, prosumer type traders that, that you might be targeting. Do you see yourself more upstream a bit? We, we, we actually see ourselves as 
right down the middle. Uh, interesting stat for us in the month of July, something like 80% of all our trading and investing came on non-Bitcoin assets. So where we, where we look at the market is we have the, you know, one side, I'll call it the left side, is all the exchanges with all the level two depth of uh, uh, the trading information only on that exchange. And then on the right side is the cash apps and the Venmo, PayPal's, and they have a simplistic approach to let people in. We sit right down the middle and say, yeah, you, you can have a simple solution to buy and sell in a really quick manner, open an account in two minutes and, or less and have it funded and traded all two minutes or less. But you get a deeper product than what you would get all the way to the right with the simple app. And the way to the left with the real full level two trading debt, that's just desktop version. No, no, no. We're going to play you right down the middle. So we're not going to confuse you but we're going to give you more than what you're going to get to the right side. And we've seen amazing adoption, actually. I mean, in the last 30 days has been just one of the biggest adoption phases that we have ever seen at Voyager. And we keep seeing it coming, the number of accounts and assets coming on our platform, because people are realizing there's a lot more in the industry than Bitcoin. And you know, I read your guys' stuff every single day. And I see the information coming out about DeFi and some of those coins. That's starting to get, gather the public's attention, not just the techies, but a lot more people. Like, uh, what is this you know, coin about? What is a compound coin about? And when we could give more information and teach people, they're starting to get more adoption. Yeah, it certainly, it certainly captured our attention at the block as well. Um, I recently added a Yield Farmer to my LinkedIn experience, expertise, I should say. Well, Steve, I think this was a really rich conversation and uh, we appreciate you coming on. DeFi is always a great way to end. It is. Because it's a new hot thing. And it's the future. It really is the future. It's just going to take a little bit longer than, you know, six months. It's going to be maybe six years, but we'll get there. I believe in it. And uh, But I appreciate you having me on. Great conversation. And, uh, you know, we'll speak to you guys soon. I'd like to give our sponsor Bitstamp a big thank you. The original global cryptocurrency exchange. Bitstamp is built for professional traders, yet intuitive enough for any investor. You can use Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, to execute your strategy or instantly buy crypto in seconds when the opportunity strikes all from your computer or mobile device. Bitstamp prides itself on delivering unmatched customer service with a human touch. Their global customer care team is available around the clock via telephone, email, and social media. When you contact them, you'll always speak to an actual person, not a bot. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro.